Hello, this is Dara Whelan and I'm the Irish Independence 1916 Project Coordinator. As part of our commemoration coverage, we're bringing you a 10-part podcast series that's looking at the history of the Easter Rising in 10 objects. It's based on the book A History of the Easter Rising in 50 Objects by well-known historian John Gibney, who's the Glasnevin Trust Assistant Professor of Irish History for Trinity College Dublin. And he's also written the biography of Sean Houston for the acclaimed 16 Live series. John, you're very welcome to the show. Good morning, Dara. So, John, on today's podcast, we're discussing a fragment of a wall from 16 Moore Street inscribed by Thomas Clark. Yeah, and this is um, in some ways a sequel to some of the other things we've discussed in these podcasts, but it has a natural relevance to um, given the extent to which Moore Street has uh, attracted both controversy and concern in recent years. And I suppose um, the reason why Moore Street attracted such concern is that it basically became, you might say, the bastion, if you will, the place where the last stand for the volunteers took place, at least in that area. Now, it's worth saying the GPO garrison was the only garrison in Dublin to surrender. The other volunteer garrisons were instructed to surrender by Pearson Connolly. This was the only one that did surrender because and they surrendered in Moore Street. Um see when when Dublin began to be a when the area around the GPO and the GPO itself began to be bombarded, um at about three PM on the twenty eighth on Friday twenty eighth of April, the roof of the GPO was hit by shells and it soon went on fire and began to collapse. Now the garrison within the building, and there are perhaps as many as five hundred you know, in the building uh, by the end of the week, decided they had to abandon it. Now, what they were trying to do by abandoning it was to get to another location north in the city, um, the rather imposing Williams and Woods Jam Factory on King's Inn Street, which still survives. And even today you can go up and see that this is a very, it was one of the first, if not the first, poured concrete building in Dublin. So very big, impressive, modern facility, you know. It's, well, it's worth going up and having a look at it one day. That was meant to be, I suppose, um, plan B when the GPO was abandoned. But to have, the thing is, though, to get from there, from, from the, to get from the GPO to Williams and Woods, men crossing the chunk of the city. And when the British had thrown a military cordon around Dublin to suppress the rebellion, that cordon went down what is now Parnell Street, Great Britain Street, to give it its original name. So they were trapped. Um, now, the first group to leave the GPO were led by Michael O'Reilly, the O'Reilly, who came out one of the great swashbuckling lines uh, of the Rising, having, having been involved in trying to call off the Rising at the behest of Owen McNeil, who decided to uh, participate in it and said, as, a, he, as he had helped to wind the clock, he would come to hear it strike. Now, but as he led a, led a group up, up Moore Street, they were fired upon by uh, soldiers at a barricade from barricade at the end of the street. And you try and visualise the scenario as people were, flo- were flooding out of that building. You'd have to run across Henry Street, which would have been fairly heavily damaged. Um... That was exposing people to fire. And they would have exited from a side entrance on the, on the GPO. Now, GPO was heavily reconstructed, so that side entrance is no longer there. But it would have went over to Moore Lane and Moore Street and tried to wind their way down around there into that cold network and warren of lanes and lockups that characterise the area. You know, maybe not as prevalent these days given redevelopment, but, I mean, Moore Street has been a fruit market for centuries. You know, it still is. Mm. And that, I suppose that's one reason why it became... Why it became um, such a such a point of concern the fact that you know if you got rid of all that area well it was gone forever mm. and it wasn't being suggested a few years ago and this seems to be lost in some of the controversy that perhaps you could turn it into a, a historic quarter the freedom trail in boston was being name checked as a possible model for something down there you know mm. um now if you go down more lane more lane kinks it goes right you know so volunteers would have gone down there Realised that they did so, they were exposed from gun to gunfire from the Rotunda Hospital, coming from the end of another lane. Mm. And at one stage broke into um, a mineral water factory, pulled a cart across the road, used that as shelter. And then they began to break into the actual terraces. Now, 
these are apparently relatively intact 18th century terraces and the, the archaeology of these has been explo- has been investigated you know and there are traces of what the volunteers did in them once they got in now um one now having said that there were uh, this was an area populated by civilians a lot of civilians were killed in Moore Street because this was extremely heavy fighting as the rising was coming to you might say in an, an inexorable end well like just a picture of this, I suppose essentially the British were enclosing closing in on, on on the rebels the rebels had abandoned the GPO the, the 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 British had obviously seen them coming out and were just trying to pick off whoever was coming in. So they they knew where they were. Would they have been closing in on them or did they hold a distance? Yeah. They held a distance, but it was a kind of a shooting gallery. Like they had the uh, the end of Moore Street closed off, sealed off. So gunfire was coming from barricades at the end of Moore Street. So if you see members of the volunteers coming down Moore Street, it was easy enough to fire at them. You know that's why they broke into the terraces because that could provide some shelter. And one thing that they did was they smashed in they smashed through walls into each adjoining house, in the hope you might find some way out, but they didn't. And it was a two-year-old's girl? There were a number of people. There was a young girl killed by um, killed when the volunteers shot through a door, mm. you know? I mean, um, one volunteer, James Cavanaugh, left a very, um, a very, you know, distressing account where he mentions that, um, I quote, I felt very sorry for the people who lived in these houses. By going into them, we were bringing death and destruction to the inhabitants. Seamus Dunnigan, an ambulance man and one of the Liverpool crowd, told me that a girl he was in was struck by a bullet. In the dark, he was groping about to find what, uh, what was wrong with her. He thought he put his fingers into her mouth. He thought he felt her teeth, but when he struck a match, he found it was through a hole in her skull he had put his finger, you know. Um, one member of the volunteers, you know, shot himself in the throat trying to smash through a door. And don't forget, though, a lot of civilians were being killed by British gunfire from the end of the street, you know. Now, the volunteers at this stage, they were tired, they lacked food and water. They had all been left behind them in the GPO. And they basically began to focus, hole up in this particular terrace. And numbers 13 to 17 are the ones that have attracted attention. Um, decades of the rosary were said, because many of these would have been devout Catholics. But it seems that... Um, Sorry, just on that, I like the line from Michael Collins. Am I allowed to use bad language here? Effing. Okay, yeah. We came, Michael Collins came across a volunteer, Joe Good, who we knew, sitting with his head in his hands on the stairs, and apparently exclaimed, I quote, are you effing praying, praying too? So, uh, a blunt man. He got things done in in word as well as deed now what we're talking about here is a fragment of the wall from number 16 moore street that's what precipitated this entire little discussion and it's a fragment of the wall inscribed by tom clark with you know six day ir six day irish republic written on it which is kind of always reminiscent to the french revolutionary calendar you know from uh, from 1790s you know year one year how big two. is this wall well, it's not how big as a house, but this is only a fragment of it. Like, the, just like the brick of it, isn't it? It's a chunk taken out of the wall. Um, Kathleen Clark, Tom Clark's widow, asked that um, Bat O'Connor, who would have come to prominence uh, in the War of Independence as one of, as one of uh, Michael Collins' associates, that O'Connor should go into the house in Moore Street and basically take down fittings that have been ascribed by, by Clark in particular, on the grounds that this was Clark's last message mm-hmm. of a sort, you know. So that's ended up in the National Museum, was taken down in the 20s and donated to the museum. Uh, number 16 is... The one is the building in which they seem to have surrendered. Now, there's a bit of controversy about that because I mean, right, people, you know, right, people's recollections could be hazy year, in the years after the fact, and this would have been a very confusing circumstance, you know, in the dark with gunfire around you, this intense, desperate situation. But Elizabeth O'Farrell, who was the the nurse who had the job of bringing the surrender order around to the various garrisons, she specifically said that um, the discussions that led to a surrender. Took, were taking place, or the discussion that preceded the decision to surrender took place in number 16 Moore Street. Uh, James Connolly was in a the room there, wounded. So it seems that, you know, the, the other leaders would have congregated around Connolly in number 16. And it's That's where to, this bit of wall came from. And it's worth remembering as well as five of the seven uh, signatories were in that room. Yeah. 
And so, you know, it was the, the whole crux of the... Of yeah, the right, Madonna and Kant were the only ones who weren't there. Mm. So uh, that, gives it, that gives it a definite degree of importance. Now, I think the whole thing about the... Personally, the, these things about, you know, the provision, the last stand of the provisional government have been over-egged by some of its advocates. But from a heritage point of view, I do think that is an area that should be preserved. Not just in relation to the Easter Rising, but, you know, in relation to the other aspects of human life that went on there, you know. I mean, uh, Moore Street had a history and has a history that isn't just about one or two days in April 1916. In fairness, because I think, yeah, I think there's something that Moore Street encapsulates everything about whether it's Dublin, the rising, the desperation, the civilians being killed, the last stand, the British coming. I I think it just encapsulates so many elements of the story. It's like the Alamo. It's It's the the last stand, as you say. That gives it a particular drama. Can I ask you that just... um, you know, you have somebody like Pierce and, and you know, they, you get the sense that they nearly wanted to go down in flames. They'd rather have been in the GPO and, you know, gone down, coming out, being shot. You know, was there a certain anti-climax to it? And was there a certain disappointment from their perspective? Well, this is where you kind of need to, you kind of need to get Pierce off the hook because Patrick Pierce was a humane man, you know, much as he, despite some of the rhetoric he came out with. And uh, Pierce's decision to um, bring the rise to an end was apparently shaped by the, the British machine gunning of a family on Moore Street. You know, Pierce was horrified by that. And, you know, the decision was precipitated by a sense that they'd made their point and there was no need to prolong anyone's further suffering. You know, the rebellion was over. To, to continue fighting was to invite further death and destruction. Now, ironically, however, you could pose a question about Thomas Clark on that one. Because um, apparently Clark, as one volunteer, Sean McGarry, said of Clark, he, quote, deplored the fact that the burning of the buildings had deprived us of a glorious fight in which he felt that even with our limited resources, we could give as good as we got. I mean, um, Clark reputedly refused to leave the Bourne and GPO and possibly was talked out of by Sean McDermott. And his wife Kathleen said that after the rising that his greatest fear was being imprisoned once again. Clark was 59 years of age when he died. He'd spent 16 years in uh, jail as a Fenian prisoner, you know, enduring a very harsh sentence. It may well have been the case that, you know, despite the fact that he seems to have had a sense of just the, the political impact of his execution, what that might be, that on the human level, he simply couldn't stand the prospect of particip- or of enduring that experience once again. Now, the thing is that if the volunteers had held out for a bit longer, he may have met a more glorious end, than, in his eyes at least, than the one he actually met at the, at the, at the hands of a firing squad. Because apparently the British were preparing to storm the terraces in Moore Street when they were informed that, that uh, Pierce and Co. had decided to surrender. I just find a question on this, um, you know, we're aware of the, the kind of the, the notion of the sacrifice behind yeah. the rebels that they, they knew they were going to die they were going to be killed one way or the other um, so why leave the GPO why not go down in a, uh, in a blaze of glory in the GPO why, why start to actually leave it why, why not accept well this is our sacrifice is coming now well some people might find this hard to accept but there does seem to have been a, at least a degree of responsibility on their part that while while they might be prepared to sacrifice themselves, or at least were reconciled to the, or expected the fact that they would die and their death might be of value as they saw it, that mightn't, um, they didn't necessarily have the right to demand it of their followers. I mean, they seem to have, um, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't, it's hard to think that the seven men who signed that proclamation didn't expect to be shot at the end of it. That's not necessarily the case with the rank and file, and certainly it seems that um, Pierce and the others hoped that the rank and file would be, could be, um, permitted to live and to perhaps to fight another day. And oddly enough, one person who actually argued that point was John Redmond. Redmond came very close to demanding the execution of the ringleaders, you know, in a speech made in the House of Commons just after the rising. 
But Redmond w- went out of his way to say that, you know, that extremity should not be extended to the rank and file who followed these men. So it seems that Pierce Clark and the others felt that, you know, maybe they had the right to sacrifice themselves, but perhaps didn't have the right to the sacrifice the lives of their followers. They live to fight another day. They might live to fight another day. Okay. John, thanks for that. Uh, next week on our podcast, A History of the Easter Rising and Ten Objects, we'll be discussing biscuits given to Kathleen Lynn whilst in prison during Easter week. Uh, John's A History of the Easter Rising and 50 Objects is published by Mercier Press and is in all good bookshops now. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, follow the show on SoundCloud, and you can read, watch, and listen to much, much more about 1916 on independent.ie forward slash 1916.